If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. so confidential. This is Dr. Scott. I'm here with the lovely and yet villainous Dr. Shiloh. Oh, I love that. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Would you rather be a villain or a hero? What do you think? If you if you were in a this big story? That's so hard. Um, let's do villain. Villains seem to get Why all the not? good lines, right? I know. And they get the good outfits and the yeah, good... They get like yeah. Jafar and Ursula... Oh, I just saw lines. the just saw the trailer for Cruella today. Does it look good? It does look good. Yeah, with Emma Stone. I had no idea she was doing it. I, I yep. saw just a, a still of her in the makeup, which looks great. But is it? I, I wonder if it's a the story of her background because yeah, it's an ori- origin story. Good, because she's supposed to be haggard by the time 101 Dimension gets around. But right, right. It does. Yeah, look let's good. let's show the lighthearted. Uh, origin story of a woman who is a pet killer, which literally there's an entire part of our law enforcement team that I work with that investigates. I know. Violence. Yes. I saw them present at a conference once and people were having the strongest reactions. They were like, we can deal with all the serial homicide stuff that's normally in this conference, but this is rough. Yeah. Was it Molly? No pun intended. I know. (laughs) Rough, rough. Was it Officer Molly? Yes, it was. She's great. love that woman. I got to work on a case with her and she's just a She's just a ray of sunshine working in such a difficult area. And so much stuff about about animal abuse and pet abuse that I did not actually want to know about. I mean, one of the things is that, you know, when animals get removed from harmful environments, they get taken to a holding area. And it's like very well kept. It's not like a, you know, horrible, you know, horror movie version of a pound. Right. But there are things that she knows the science behind it that, like, you don't want to keep animals that have been domesticated in that environment too long because they revert to a form of feralness or ferality. Right. Like pack and, mentality. And, right. And they may not come yeah. back. Like, they may go to a place of being overprotective of themselves and their environment. So I wow. thought that was fascinating. Well, and I'm glad they care about that sort of stuff. Right. She, she was such a good presenter because she was it's funny that you say she's a ray of sunshine because she was very dry and 
like kind of snarky and witty in moments, I think for some levity. And it was just, it was perfection the way that she presented everything. Yeah. She's a, she's a lovely woman and great professional just really takes her job seriously. So what did we do this weekend? We've had a very full week, haven't we? We have had a full, we said that this, after the first quarter of this year, we're really going to cool it on some things because we need to slow down a little bit. And um, yeah, we did a Get Vocal charity event yesterday with Josh Hallmark of True Crime Bullshit for the Charlie Project. They raised over $25,000 as of last night. I was going to ask you that. So what was that? That was over the goal though, right? Was that? Actually, I think they were shooting for higher than that, but I mean, that is incredible. Right. I mean, just amazing. So they had 20 or no, I'm sorry, 12 hours of true crime content with people filling up the day with different Q and A's. Of course, Rebecca Sebastian did trivia and live shows. And then you and I did a book club kind of shared our favorite books that shaped us as forensic psychologists. Well, and that was your idea. You get all the credit for that. But I think that people really appreciated it. I mean, we kept seeing in the chat box, like, wait, write all these down, write all these down. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, I think people great. liked it. And then... So we should put a link in this show also to the Charlie Project for anyone absolutely. that didn't know that we were doing that. Please consider giving anything you can. If you can contribute $5 towards the Charlie Project, it is a really fantastic organization. Can you give the the elevator pitch on the Charlie? Yeah, basically it's a one-woman mission and she has the Charlie Project website where she compiles information on people who are currently missing. And I know a lot of podcasters go to her because her research is so rich and in-depth when they are doing their own research for their shows on cases that they're covering that she has in her database. So um, she's just definitely on a mission and doesn't have a lot of funds to contribute and keep going. And and so sounds like she's going to be set for a little bit. So this is really nice to reward her for her work. And if you, if you don't even have any bucks to spare this month or in the next six months, which I completely understand, please go to the website anyway and watch the video that is there about who she is. Yeah. Her story is is awe-inspiring about what she has created and why she is so devoted to this work. And one of the things that I came away from it with, which I thought was so great, is she's very careful to delineate what she feels her role is. Her role is to collect information. She's not interpreting anything. She's not making any prognostications. She's not making any predictions, putting out any theories. She's just collating information, which is an incredibly valuable tool for any kind of research journalism, including podcasting and true crime podcasting. Yeah, it's very, very good. I'm glad we were a part of that. And then upcoming this week, so Thursday, February 25th, we're going to have our noir film watch party. Very excited about that. So it's going to be... This is the first time we've done this. Yeah. (laughs) It is. It's going to be at six o'clock here on the West Coast. But anybody, well, anyone up to 100 people can join this. So the way that this is going to go is that you log on through Amazon Video. I'm going to start the watch party 
I will pause it. I'll get on a little bit early. I'm going to send out the link via our social media. And then you can also log on with that link. You can get the movie if you have Amazon Prime or you can rent it for a couple bucks. And then I start it and we all get to watch together and there's a chat room feature. So we can all watch it together in real time. Scott, I can pause it for a bathroom break, but I don't know if people would appreciate that. So maybe you'll just I have to miss out. <laughs> I'll wear my stadium pal or a diaper like the crazy astronaut woman that drove oh, across country. No, <laughs> but, I mean, I, what I want to say is this is going to be our first attempt to do this. And I'm going to try and make it like the old MTV pop-up video as much as I can, because there's a lot of interesting stuff about the actors that are involved in it. So I'll be throwing out some crazy trivia about some of the characters that are in the movie and well, that'll be fun yeah we're gonna have a blast so yeah. we're gonna watch in a lonely place it is from 1950 it stars humphrey bogart gloria graham and the summary is a potentially violent screenwriter is a murder suspect until his lovely neighbor clears him however she soon starts to have her doubts so you and i have never seen this movie right I haven't. No, I have not. But I love Humphrey Bogart and I love Gloria Graham. And she's she's also like a really fascinating Hollywood story. And Annette Bening starred in a movie about her life several years ago and got me fascinated with who she is. So I went into a deep dive on her background. And it's no kidding. Very interesting. Yeah. How fun. Well, it should be great. I think if this is a hit, we might do it later on as well. And we'll definitely be doing this for our Patreon members down the road too. So, yes. well, so this week, once again, as I say to you, to the point, which I'm sure all of the listeners are sick of it. I'm once again, did a deep dive into a case that I only knew tangentially. And this is the Wineville chicken coop murders of Southern California. Ooh. So this is a case from almost almost 100 years ago, which is also yes. kind of wacky that like we have right. all these accurate, accurate records about newspaper articles and police interviews that we were able to look at in order to do the research on this. But it's almost 100 years old. And yet the violence in this particular case is just really overwhelming. I mean, it, this takes place in LA at the time of really one of the first real economic booms that occurs prior to World War II. And it's called the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. It occurred between 1926 and 1928 in Los Angeles and Riverside counties. The Wineville area as a town does not exist because it became so notorious that they had to change their name, but it still is there. The crime itself is horrific. And it was the inspiration for a movie from 2008 called The Changeling that starred Angelina Jolie and was directed by Clint Eastwood. And it was focused really on just one singular aspect of the crime that in itself spins off into another horrifying story yep. about involuntary psychiatric holds at that time and what they meant and how freaking easy they were to do to just put someone away if you didn't like what they were saying. Incredible. Yeah. So Wineville is now Miraloma is what they renamed the city, but Wineville Road still exists. Whoa. And I actually took a little field trip out there yesterday. <laughs> 
So not only that's does out wine... your area. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 much further east than me, but not a difficult drive at all. And the area, the city was named Wineville because there's a winery that's been there since 1927. The vineyards were there prior to that. And so I thought murder site and a winery, maybe this deserves a field trip. So you know, I called my mom and my sister and I said, hey, would you guys entertain this with me? And they were like, do you even have to ask? Yes, let's go. <laughs> but the house where the murders took place still exists. And the actual farmhouse still the is there. actual farmhouse. Wow, and that's crazy. It's now hugely developed with homes. When before, when this was happening, it was just wide open, you know, ranch land. But we went and drove by it. Of course, we're very respectful. There are people that live there. There's a big gate in front of the home. But two doors down is a Montessori school, a preschool, Ooh. which was super creepy to think about because of what we're going to tell you happened down there today. But I was also reminded of this story when I had been watching American Horror Story, the hotel series, because the housekeeper in that series, her storyline is that she's one of the mothers of these boys that gets kidnapped from Los Angeles. She's the one that's always like cleaning the bloody sheets. Was that Kathy Bates? No, Kathy Bates worked the front desk. I can't remember the actress's name. I'll have to look and see. So she's but, the the cleaning person. Okay. Yeah, she's she's the housekeeper of the hotel, and they do a whole episode showing how her child was kidnapped and then a part of the Wineville chicken coop murders. So if you want to look up investigation photos from these incidents, the LA Public Library has amazing documents and photos of when uh, Los Angeles Police Department went out to Riverside once they finally busted this case wide open. And you can look at some of those vintage photographs if you're into that. So this case is really particularly intriguing to me because of the murkiness of it. And when it came to trial, the individuals that were held responsible were basically two people. It was Gordon Stewart Northcutt, who went by the name Stewart, and his mother, Sarah Louise Northcutt, who went by the name Louise, which is very interesting because that's a, a tradition that happens in the South, as well as you have three names, but you always go by your middle name. So uh, Stewart Northcutt was born in Bladworth, Saskatchewan, Canada, but he was raised in British Columbia with his family. He was born on November 9th, 1906 to Sarah Louise and Cyrus George Northcutt. Uh, in 1924, at the age of 17, he and his parents moved to Los Angeles. So Los Angeles was experiencing this huge building and um, agricultural boom. A lot of industries were moving down here. It was seen really by most of the world as this blossoming paradise because the temperatures year-round are so temperate out here. So they had two children at the time, uh, Gordon Stuart, our Stuart is our characters at age 17, and his older sister, Winifred, who was age 34. She was already married by this time and had two children of her own. There was also a deceased son who passed away at age six prior to Stuart's birth. So Winifred stayed in Canada to care for her two teenage children, Sanford and Jesse, a daughter and son. But the quickly family quickly moved following Gordon's or Stuart's attempted assaulting a neighborhood child that he had become infatuated with. So Ooh, let me back up a second. Okay. So the family moves to Southern California to immigrate and have a better life, you know, sort of the golden avenues of, of Los Angeles area. Daughter, adult, is married, has two kids. She stays in Canada and keeps her kids there. And what we know so far is that there is a deceased child that was born prior 
to our perpetrator named right. Stuart. So I'm just setting that up because I think from a family uh, systems dynamic, psychodynamically, psychologically, that's going to come into play a little bit later. And I'm thinking, I don't know if you found anything on this, that they did have money because what I found is that they had three homes eventually here in Southern California. Yes. So they had the the ranch in Wineville, they had a home in Boyle Heights, and then there was a cabin in Saugus, which right. is a little north of us. Right. And so they clearly had some funds coming down here. I'm not really sure about the status of did they come as legal? Did they Were they immigrating? Did they have some dual citizenship? Not really sure what was going down with that, but it does come into play later. So remember that they were Canadian citizens. So they move into Southern California, set up a house in a lovely neighborhood. And what becomes really quick, quickly noticed by the people that are able to observe the family or come into contact with them is that Stuart at age 17 runs the house. And he is prone to fits of anger. He's very grandiose. He orders his father around who seems to be presented as sort of a passive character, but not quite because we're going to find out later. However, his mother, Stuart's mother is, well, his mother, quote unquote, is incredibly protective of him and hovering and just bows and kowtows to his every need, even to the point of screaming at her husband and arguing with her husband about keeping Stuart's needs being met 24 hours a day. So oh boy, sounds like a recipe to, for disaster. Already. It's totally a rest. That's some bad family dynamics right there. So what starts to emerge is that Stuart is a really unhealthy young man. And he becomes infatuated with a neighborhood child. In fact, a child that just lives a couple of houses down. And he begins doing what we would consider, for those of us that have worked with sex offenders, is he starts grooming the child and spending tons of time with him and showering this 10-year-old with praise. So like any 10-year-old who's getting all this attention from what, for all intents and purposes, seems to be like an adult, he's responding really well. But what he doesn't understand is that Stuart is grooming him. So with the minute that the parents are not in the house, he brings the young man and the young boy into the house and plays piano with him, but makes a move on him and attempts to engage him in sexual activity. The kid is completely freaked out, says no, pushes him away, runs out. And the next morning, clearly, the parents of that boy have reported it to detectives. So detectives come to the house to investigate. One thing I also want to say is we pulled information from various sources, which was very interesting because all three sources cover some very interesting aspects of this case, but no one integrated all of it together, which I found mm. very interesting. So, And was this, mm, this grooming of this child and sexual assault, was that here in California or when they were fleeing Canada? No, they were already here in Southern California. Okay. So they had settled into one house, and it was that happened about after a year. Okay. His ten-year-old, his name was Philip Scott. So he was spending all of his time with Philip. Philip, you know, uh, becomes obsessed with the kid, makes a move on him. Kid pushes him away. The detectives come. They're questioning the the parents. The father is just sort of gobsmacked and is you know doesn't really have an excuse. Mom flies into a rage and gets in the detective's face and says, how dare you accuse us of this? This is ridiculous. My son would never do that. That child is lying. That child is lying. You need, I can't believe they would say this. Do you know who we are? Just hmm. sort of, you know, pattering on, pattering on. So the detective goes away and it sort of disappears 
we don't really have any information about what was further investigated about that. However, what they realize is that they've got to move and Stewart's got to get out of the picture. So Stewart comes up with an idea to get as far away from that house, but still stay in the area. So he gets his parents to buy him a chicken farm in Wineville. Now, it's a very interesting area because as you go farther and farther east, you have some very interesting changes in the topography or the geography here in Southern California. Unless there's irrigation and water in the area, it's basically desert scrub. Right. And it's temperate most of the year, incredibly hot during the summer, prone to flooding uh, during spring. But as agriculture was being formed, we had incredible citrus groves here. But this guy basically gets his parents to buy him a farm, build him a house in the middle of nowhere. Like you were saying earlier, it was in the middle. Now it's the middle of a suburb and it's Mm -hmm. a beautiful, tidy neighborhood. But this was literally miles away from anything. You had to have a car to get there. You had to have a car to get out of there. Dirt roads, the whole nine yards. Which clearly he chose. So on one hand, backing up to talk about the parents, allegedly the father's a complete pushover. But later on, evidence comes up way down the road after there's adjudication and what were in the crimes we're going to be talking about. It is likely that Stewart was actually his alleged sister's child. Biological father had incested his 17-year-old daughter, Winifred, given birth to him. And then for some reason, Sarah becomes obsessed with this new child. You would think that maybe she would be angry that, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of dynamics. I mean, which we can't even, we could speak for hours about the role of women at that time and how things like this happen. Who's going to believe a young woman that her father would commit such a horrible crime against her? You just kept stuff like that in the family. But makes sense if the mother had lost a child that now here's sort of this new son, right? Right. So did the death of her six-year-old son trigger this obsession? I mean, was it some kind of like defense mechanism to claim her husband and her daughter's incestuous child as her own? I, it, you know, it seems like, that's a likelihood that redirect redirected grief somewhere there. Right. But clearly what we, what we see coming down the pipes later is that mom had some pretty significant issues from the beginning and those start to exhibit pretty strongly. But it's important to note that in this story, Stuart is 17 years old, his sister's 34. So she was incested when she was about seven, 16, 17 years old. So he's gotten out. Now he's started up this chicken farm, has hundreds of chickens, and he is trying to work it himself. His parents are living in another location, and he realizes very quickly, like, he cannot do it alone. Comes up with an idea to get his sister, Winifred, to send her son down to him from Canada on the assumption that he's going to get uh, schooled in America. He's going to get his education in America. He's going to have a lot of opportunities here. But what quickly happens once the young man comes down is he's basically just turned into the farm slave. So Stuart is horribly abusive, pushing him around, working him to a frazzle, and very quickly engages him in assaultive and violent sexual behaviors. He rapes him on a nightly basis, beats him, starves him, and is getting away with it because he's making Sanford, the young man, write letters to his mom that everything's okay, everything's okay, when it clearly was not. 
And definitely put a pin in that, the forcing to write letters when I talk about his victims later. Very and, important to remember. Yeah. And the nephew, Sanford, was 13 when he was brought down, right? Yes, 13. So what's interesting to note is like there's more when people and there are several authors that have written about this and it becomes very clear that the parents knew something wrong was wrong with Stuart and they were just tacitly supporting him in this. And maybe there was the assumption, well, like if he's out in the middle of nowhere, then he's less likely to get in trouble. Or if he does get in trouble, then it's out in the middle of nowhere and it won't make a big scene and come back to affect us. And did they know that their nephew grandson uh, was going to get, you know, is going to be treated in this horrible way. We, who will know time that'll be lost to time. Although there is a really great book that tells Sanford's story that we're going to put in the show notes that I highly recommend. So Stuart quickly isolates Sanford from anybody. And clearly they're in basically a, a desert Island. There's no way for him to get in or out. He beats him to the point of unconsciousness uh, on the first night and then sexually assaults him, rapes him. And he continues the physical and sexual abuse while also giving him a pet name, which is really disturbing, starts calling him my darling as he's beating him and raping him. And then also starts to deliver the message, you like this, you're just like me, you're like this, you're just like me. So there wasn't even grooming in this case, you know, the second he gets down here from Canada, he is brutal to this boy and really just treating him him like a... Right. Keeping him like a piece of property just for absolutely his own needs. Well, which, which is talk about putting a pin in. That's another thing to understand the motivation behind. I mean, this this guy's a cornucopia of diagnoses, clearly, but his complete dehumanizing and objectifying these young, these these children is very clearly part of it. Like we're already talking about some severe personality disorder issues right now. So Cyrus and Sarah the parents come out every once in a while to have dinner, to stay a couple of nights at the ranch. It's clear that Sanford was being abused. He was malnourished. He was not regularly bathed. He was covered with bruises. And then there was always an excuse. There was apparently there were always excuses like, Oh, I fell down or I hit myself with the shovel, all that kind of thing, all with glaring of, uh, Stuart all the time. By the way, there's an episode of evil Ken on investigation discovery which is about 45 minutes long. And it's really, it's a little bit over the top as those reenactment shows are, but they do a good job showing how awful this poor child was, was abused. I mean, like showing how it just was unrelenting and how it came out of nowhere. And like you said, with no grooming, really no setup in this particular situation. Right. And where's he going to go? Like, right. what is he, he going to do? Which is something that he, in later years, when he was interviewed, he was, that's what he, it was helplessness. I mean, it was really not even so much Stockholm syndrome, because I don't think Sanford ever identified, regardless right. of the fact that he was forced to do some really horrible things. Mm-hmm. I don't think he actually identified. There's a psychologist on the show that's interviewed, and she she supposes that Stockholm syndrome was involved. I don't think that was it at all. I think it was just surviving. Yeah. Because Stockholm syndrome, we tend to think... Like we've talked about it in our shows about it, this right. there's an identification with the perpetrator. So like we said earlier, Sanford's mom, Winifred, is supplied with letters dictated by Stuart. He was writing that everything was fine. He was in school. He was doing well. Winifred, she's not believing it. Within a couple of weeks of getting letters, she realizes that something's really wrong. One day, allegedly, in for later interviews, Sanford says that 
Stuart walked into the barn and said he was going out for fresh meat. And this really picked something up in Sanford because he realized he's, he's bored with me. He's going to start bringing other kids in, which is exactly what Stuart starts to do because he starts to witness multiple children being brought to the farm to be abused, but he has to survive. He witnesses multiple children that had been kidnapped and abused in this way. They're raped, either held for the day or multiple days. They're beaten, and then they're returned in Stewart's roadster and dumped by the side of the road. So many, of, we don't even know how many victims there were. Right. Because a lot of these kids may have come from families that didn't speak English. Well, and there were so many boys at this time that were running away from home or reported missing, you know, the even just the LAPD with the whole scenario with the one victim we're going to talk about said, you know, they had 15 of these reports a day. And a lot of it was children leaving to go work on ranches or these orchards, the um, orange and lemon industry out here in the the orchards and just leaving home to try and help the family financially because of such dire times. So, you know, it, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, picking up these young kids. And there is no communication because it was a very different time. So it's, there's no cell phones. There's no, really no telephones. And and certainly unless you had a lot of money. So it would be expected that you would go and find yourself a job and maybe get a letter off in the next couple of months. So there's just this big period of time where something really bad could go wrong. And it's supposed or theorized that many of his victims didn't report it because there was no one to report it to. They were either non-English speaking children or there was a lot of shame involved. Like they're going to go admit that they got kidnapped and raped by a man, which would have been incredibly shameful for a child. How does a child even communicate that to their parents? So we'll never really know how many victims there were because in the the next year and a half when Stewart's caught, he clearly loves manipulating the interviewers, the police, and his attorneys, just telling wildly different stories all the time. And during one of the events, Stewart encounters a 15-year-old Latino boy named Julio Mendez. He's running a fruit stand on the side of the road. There's nobody really around for a long way. So Stewart gets out and uh, allegedly Stewart misinterprets how Julio is responding to him. Julio's politeness to him is interpreted as accepting of his advances. And then when Stuart moves on him sexually, Julio gets very angry and shoves him away and tells him to get lost, turns his back, and then Stuart flies into a rage, pulls a gun from his car, and shoots Julio in the back. So he is not particularly concerned that he's just taken someone's life. And I think that this is important also to remember that this right now is the turning point for him. It's not just rape, assault, molestation. He has now taken a life and he's okay with it. So he dumps the body on the side of the road after beheading the victim to prevent any identification. Right. And this victim body was found all the way back in like the East Los Angeles area. So you, know, you think about the covering up of this, right? So beheading to prevent identification, loading him in a car, driving him all the way back towards LA to then dump the body. It's very different from everything else we're going to see after this, which I'll have more to say about later. Right. But he uses this opportunity as a way to further manipulate Sanford. And he comes back with a tar bucket, um, 
um, that was would have been used by roadmen to you know repair the road or repair roofs because it had tar in it. And what he had in the bucket that he reveals to Sanford is he is cut off the head of one of his victims. And I'm, what I'm not clear about is whether it was Julio's head or if it was possibly the head of another child that was later identified. And that's not clear to me. And I read, I was reading all the newspapers, but it, there's a lot of conflict there. So I don't know if there were clearly many dismemberments of his victims in order right. to hide the evidence. But what he does is this now is a turning point for him and Sanford. He's now making Sanford engage in his behaviors and he threatens him each time. If you don't do what I tell you to do, I will kill you. I'll kill your mom. Makes all these threats about family members. He just has no remorse whatsoever. And Sanford acquiesces. He engages in the sexual assault of some of the other children. He also engages in violence against the children, leading to their deaths. And there's a big turning point that you're going to talk about as well. Mm -hmm. So one of uh, the visits that comes up, Sarah comes to visit. She notices Stuart going back and forth between the chicken coop and she later investigates and she finds it locked, but she's really suspicious. Why is he going back and forth? So she goes and she looks through the slats in the coop door and she's able to identify a sleeping child that she recognizes from her neighborhood, Walter Collins. This has been all over the newspapers, all over the newspapers. He's been missing for several days by this point. And she calls out to him and says, you're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. And with the light falling through, clearly she was able to tell that he had been beaten. There was blood on his face and he was either sleeping or unconscious because he didn't respond. But she uh, apparently she could tell he was still alive. So this is the first time that she actually confronts Stuart saying, what have you done? I can't believe this. This is, you know, this you've done this again. What are you doing to our family? You're, there's no way we're going to be able to take care of this. She picks up a hatchet and runs out, and she breaks the lock on the coop door. Stuart is freaking out, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? She goes into the barn or into the chicken coop and strikes the first blow of Walter Collins. So she's not there to protect him. She's there only to protect her name and the name of her son. To take care of the problem, essentially. To take care of the problem, exactly. Now, the other thing that happens at this point is that she has the hatchet. She's now struck the first blow. She turns to both Sanford and Stewart and basically says, everybody has to take part. So clearly, the apple did not fall far from the tree in like trying to spread culpability around because that was the same thing. That Sanford, that Stewart had been doing to Sanford earlier is making him engage in all these things and further saying, well, you're in it now. If I get in trouble, you get in trouble. Yeah. Clearly some violent trauma bonding going on here, but she doesn't have any remorse either. And Sanford, it becomes responsible for disposing of Walter's body. Now let's take a hard right back to Canada. Winifred realizes something's up. She comes for a visit. She stays. She's really disturbed by how off Stuart is, how violent, how angry he becomes. She's really worried about Sanford because clearly he has been beaten and malnourished. He's cowed. He's terrified. Stuart, by this time, has said, don't you say anything to her. Don't you tell anybody because I'll, I'll 
I'll kill you. I'll kill her. She sneaks into his room. Actually, she's staying in his room. So she sneaks into the coop to speak to Sanford. And at first he's saying, no, nothing's wrong. Stop saying that. Stop saying that. And she forces and forces and pushes and pushes. And he finally says, I can't tell you anything. He'll kill both of us if I say anything. So Winifred actually thinks it through and realizes the limitations of what she can do in the moment. She travels back to Canada and she realizes that there's really not going to be a chance for her to report it to police with such a wild story. Mm-hmm. Who's going to believe her that like, you've got to go to California to rescue my son because my brother, who's also my son is going <laughs> to kill him. And like, so she right. seems pretty smart. She goes to the, uh, consulate and she says they're there illegally my son is there illegally and he is not going to school and i know that's against the law so you've got to do something about it and she sort of hints that he's also being victimized but basically she knows by now which laws are going to go into effect if she reports illegal immigration right and they have to move on that stuff so she they knows have it's to an move easy on it. in Stuart has figured out after she leaves is that something's up. He realizes there's no way that she didn't figure out a good portion of it. He starts frantically packing. He's now digging up bodies that have been buried all around the area, dismembering them further, scattering pieces so that there's no solid evidence. In fact, I don't think other than the beheaded young man, I don't think that ever any solid full corpses were found it was just body parts in the area yeah and i think they had there had been some burning of body parts and uh, maybe covering them with lye i think yes. samford had to do some of that so very well disposing of evidence really right. when it comes down to it so he realizes that at some point there's going to be ca- a car trundling down the road and that car because it's in the middle of nowhere, it's going to be law enforcement. So he's desperately packing. He's trying to make a plan. And he tells Sanford, if you tell them that I've run, I will wait in the mountains with my rifle and I'll kill you from the the forest line. You won't be able to see me. I'll kill you. I'll kill the cops. And then I'll go kill your mom. So Sanford, of course, is terrified. He's huddling in a closet when the police find him huddling He lies for a little bit, and then after a certain amount of time, he tells them the whole story, or as much as he feels he can tell them, and they run out to see if they can catch Stuart. By this time, he's enlisted his mom, and basically her idea is, we'll just go get lost in Canada. Let's get out of here. They pack up the car. They um, try and make their escape. Now that Sanford... Sounds like the affluenza teen and his mom. Oh, my God. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah. Wow. That's Go get yeah. lost in Mexico. <laughs> that's very interesting. So they're apprehended, of course. They're absolutely apprehended. And the whole thing now starts a discovery and exploration of all the background information. And they're both sent to trial. And this is where it starts to get really confusing because at first... Sarah confesses to the murder of Walter. She's trying to take the blame. She has this weird narcissistic enmeshment with her son and taking the blame for him. Who knows what was going through her mind? But as she's basically giving up all this information, she is coming up with any and all possible excuses. And that's when it gets revealed, allegedly, which I don't know if this has actually ever been proven, that 
her daughter Winifred is not really her daughter. She's her granddaughter because her husband, Cyrus Gordon, fathered Stuart with Winifred. Oh, so, that's right. That's right. Then she also claimed that Gordon, who's been like this passive sort of shadow character in the back, that he had actually been sexually molesting Stuart from childhood. Right. From when he was 10 years old all the way up until he was 16 years old. And then at one point during the discovery or the interviews, Stuart said that his mother made him wear girls' clothing until he was 16 years old. So I don't, but I we're not able to find firm information or whether or not she was just throwing spaghetti against a wall to see what would stick. Who knows? I mean, with the allegations of the incest and all of the different relationships. I mean, once a family is sort of crossed over into that area, all of this is completely possible. Yeah. So just the, the lack of sexual boundaries and appropriateness in some families where this is just rampant, it could very well be this way, um, which is really sad and disturbing to say, but yeah, I mean, again, this is like so long ago, it's hard to find anything except her testimony of these things. And it could have been just totally like dog and pony show to try and make things sound really wild and mitigate his responsibility. So we're not going to know. I mean, I mean, clearly there was some disturbing stuff going on and probably some sort of genetic predisposition because there are some actions that Sarah takes that are borderline psychotic, really. I mean, she and Stuart are acting in a way that is so violent and their method of thinking, their ideation about what is the appropriate way to handle a situation to immediately go to violence and to immediately objectify children as subhuman, basically. Even at this time, children were given more respect than that, although they usually held more adult responsibilities if they were in lower income. It's just horrifying. It really, really is. So I want to jump in here just to elaborate a little bit further on intrafamilial sexual abuse, unless you had anything else to cover, anything you wanted to wrap up with here. I just want to give a couple of one more point. Um, Sanford was involved in the trial as well because he was implicated in involvement in the murders. And luckily for him, the right thing was done, and he was sent to a boys' reformatory for a few years where he was able to get his life in order. I'm, I don't know how the guy survived. In fact, there's a really great author and a great book about Sanford's life and how he went on to actually be a successful individual with a loving family. He was a loving grandfather. He died at age 78. Uh, in Canada in 1991. So this poor kid who had been traumatized and forced into a life of violence at a very early age was somehow able to pull on a source of resiliency and have a quality life. Incredible. And I'm so glad that an author thought that that would be a worthy thing to write about. Yes, agreed. And so Stuart Northcott got life and well he was sentenced to death and he went to San Quentin and was executed there. Do we know what mom what happened with mom? Yeah, mom uh, let me let me hold my fury in. Mom was sentenced to life 
And then it was commuted to 17 years. And then she only did about 11 years. Oh, boy. And then she was released. And yeah, I mean, they're, I, it, the trail goes cold after that. They probably had enough financial means to somewhat disappear. But that's where I want to do a further deep dive into the existing literature. I, I, this is another one that I'm just going to be fascinated with about that family dynamic. I want to find out what happened. Oh, God. I hope she didn't have any more kids. So to to just talk about this idea and uh, phenomenon of intrafamilial sexual abuse, like I said before, you know, when we think of sexual offenses that take place within the family, it can be very disturbing often evokes a lot of feelings of disgust. However, when we acknowledge that one in four girls and one in five boys are abused before the age of 18, and that most perpetrators of sexual offenses are family members or people close to the family, it kind of makes sense. It, it, It shouldn't stand out as rare, I guess I should say, even though the disgust is, I get that, that does make sense. But it it shouldn't stand out as rare, is I guess what I'm trying to say here. The term incest historically kind of has been reserved for the act of intercourse taking place between family members, including instances between consenting adults. So, you know, usually we're talking about children being perpetrated against by family members, but there are other situations. And incest, I think, is also more of a legal term when in certain jurisdictions that certain relationships and sexual relations between people is actually illegal. So that's why in the literature we use intrafamilial sexual abuse. It can be between any sort of set or variety of relatives. And usually when, even if it's not a relative, like a blood relative, but if someone has been in your life through marriage or common law, something like that for around two years is kind of the the cutoff where we say, okay, now it makes it intrafamilial. So you can have a girl who is sexually abused by her mother's boyfriend, who's been in the picture for two years. And we would say that's intrafamilial, even though they're not related by blood. But If we look at the statistics for this type of specific abuse, about one-third of intrafamilial offenders sexually abuse more than one child within the family, if they can, if they're available for their abuse. And additionally, a third of intrafamilial offenders admit to having both male and female victims. So this data really mimics the wider research that we've talked about before, especially when we talk about pedophilia and some of the sexual offenses that we've covered before, where there's a great deal of crossover as far as who they victimize when it comes to gender. And if we look at that in terms of usually being prepubescent children, we've talked before how, you know, there's not a lot of differences between the bodies of children before they hit puberty. So they're they're taking advantage of whoever is in that age range that is around, be it male or female. So let me just make sure I understand this research. So you're saying a third of the intrafamilial offenders abuse more than one child in the family. Mm-hmm. And is it then additionally a third of those? Or is no, it just third? overall. Yeah, overall. no, it, it's okay. not that they're the okay. same third, um, but just overall, if we take an aerial view of 
interfamilial offending. You have a third of them who are offending against more than one child. And then you have a third that say, yes, they've had male and female victims. So they're, they're not the same exact okay. third. Right. right. But you're so, so that data you're talking could. about, it could, but the gender crossover in those victimologies, mm-hmm. that gender crossover is more prevalent in significantly prepubescent, right? Correct. Because it's about the body type and the body shape that doesn't really have any sexual, secondary sexual characteristic development, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Yes. That's creepy as hell. I mean, like, it's all gross. It's all disgusting and gross and horrible. But that particularly is almost like, God, I don't even know the the words to describe it, except that it's even further objectification of the child. Absolutely. Like they're a doll. Exactly. Exactly. And there's, I think I've talked about this before, but there's even research about like why that is um, the smoothness of the skin, you know, being um, like lighter, you know, children who are smaller are lighter in weight. It's just like, it gets very, very specific. And it sounds just like a doll. It does. An object. Exactly. That's when you said that, that's what triggered that for me. The most common age range of victim is 8 to 12. So if you think about it, this is really like a school age child who is spending a lot more time unsupervised. So that area of 8 to 12, they don't need to be watched all the time. They can be a little bit more unsupervised. But they're still quite reliant on parents and family and people to be there and around them. So so that the age of 8 to 12 is most common for a victim of intrafamilial sexual abuse. Now, Sanford was 13 to 15, but it was pretty quick, you know, 13 to 14-ish. And then Stuart was like, I got to go look for new children to abuse. I think Sanford was really starting to age out of his preference. Well, yes. Because the children think, were much younger, the victims. Right. But I, I, I can't help but think that there were, there was dual tracks going on here. Not only was there this significant pedophilia for significant prepubescent, but he also had this weird desire to connect with that 15 year old. And yeah. clearly the 15 year old was, like a, a, a well-built young man, 15 years old, with secondary sexual ca- characteristics. So I think that there was a lot going on that he wasn't just, it wasn't just about that pedophilia. There was also this really uncontrolled rage and tendency to violence as well. Sure. Like a, a very accessible punching bag. You know, I can get my sister to ship her kid down here. I'll have a ranch hand. I'll have a punching bag. And I'll also have somebody that I can sexually offend against. Maybe he's not my preference, but at least I can start molding him. And then I can go capture these kids that I'm really, really interested in. Right. So there's some other research that focuses specifically on father, daughter, and stepfather, stepdaughter incest that indicates that perpetrators were often absent from the victim's early childhood, like three to six years of age, and that the onset of the abuse ends up being more towards the time that the girl hits puberty. So in other words, when it's a father or stepfather abusing the daughter, more often than not, she is actually closer to puberty 
and they didn't have much of a relationship. He was sort of out of the picture when she was younger. And I've I've seen this. I've anecdotally I've had where fathers come into the role of father much later in the girl's life, and then they end up sexually abusing them. Now, whether that's the opportunity wasn't there because they weren't present earlier, or they're again their preference is more towards a pubescent child. I don't know. Horrible. It is horrible. <laughs> it's just horrible. I know. It's all awful. I'm sorry. You know, this is, I'm trying to give this as clinically like textbook as, as well. Much as I mean, I can, look, but it's, a, it it's horrible it's stuff, but it's really incredibly important because people need to know that this kind of thing can happen. And while I, you know, don't want to anyone to really completely alter their view of the world, it is important mm-hmm. to know that these kind of crimes can happen. And People need to be aware and be aware and and of and recognizing grooming factors. Yes, when children definitely. are being manipulated in that way. Absolutely. So the abuse at the hands of an adult family member tend to happen more frequently and over a longer duration than molestations committed by a non-family member, which again makes sense because they have that regular exposure to a right. child living in the house. It's accessibility. Common attributes of incest offenders include the lack of a sexual partner, intimacy deficits, social isolation, marital discord if they are married, role reversal, so of the child and the non-offending partner, so substituting your wife for with a child instead. We also see impulsiveness and a lot of feelings of low self-worth. So hey, I got a question. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where did you where did you copy and paste all this from? <laughs> That's rude. Just because there are full sentences and paragraphs here. This I is my own it. published research, Mr. I know. I'm just Dr. I'm Scott. Giving, I'm giving you shit because I want people to know that <laughs> that Dr. Shiloh was actually reading from her own published work because she is so <laughs> forking amazing that she's Stop a published it. scientific author and <laughs> And you know this shit. You really, you really know off. it. <laughs> uh, yeah, this I'll, I'll put the, it, it'll be on our research, resource page, but this is um, from a chapter I did on this topic in uh, the Encyclopedia of Criminal Psychology. It came out a couple years ago. So and the reason I, I wanted to say that also, because like, look, we, we get research from all over the place. For anybody who's an amateur or, or starting with an interest in this stuff, I think I always send people to Wikipedia. And tell mm-hmm. them to read it, then go click on all the links and do the deep the resources, dive. Yeah. See the resources. They're fascinating stuff. But I also wanted to give a shout out to so to my colleague who I think is wonderful. And also so that people understand that you're actually doing the work. You're actually still steeped in this stuff. I think it's amazing. I try. I really try. You and I are still working on an article, speaking of Stockholm Syndrome, that is dragging on, but it it's is on, on my, my to-do list. It's on my desktop. <laughs> we'll get to that in March. That's on the March list. Sounds good. Um, so very quickly, we know that women who offend against their own children were often victims themselves of severe emotional, physical, and sexual abuse in childhood. I didn't want to leave out female sex sex offenders, but I know we've covered this too. Um, They tend to suffer from substance abuse disorders and are unable to form secure attachments often, which is what enters into abusive adult relationships. And then they end up veering more towards children 
in a very twisted way um, where they are sort of replacing the emotional closeness of an absent adult partner. So there's very different motives when you do split hairs on this stuff that we're not going to totally get into. But for those women who have really poor boundaries or less than optimal judgment stemming from childhood victimization, emotional intimacy ends up blurring with sexual intimacy. And that is particularly, it's really integral to this particular story because later in the trial, as Stuart starts to just throw all sorts of crap out to the attorneys that is contradicting and confounding and confusing, one of the statements he makes is that he was having sex with Sarah, that he and his mother-grandmother had been engaged in a sexual relationship. Now, whether or not that was true, we'll never know. But clearly, there was some unhealthy, toxic uh, enmeshment occurring at this time. Is this one of those, like, I'm my own grandfather situations? Well, here I am. I'm stumbling over it. So, yeah. It's, it's very hard to wrap your head around. Really, yeah. So, the um, I don't know if there's a silver lining here, but when we compare intrafamilial sexual abusers to non-intrafamilial sexual abusers, there is less antisocial stuff going on with them, and there's less pedophilic disorder going on with them. So it does seem to be very opportunistic, situational, multi-factors going on, rather than the offenders that we see who are not committing offenses against children in their own families. And when incest offenders get caught and there's some sort of intervention like treatment, they actually have some of the lowest reoffense rates wow. of all sex offenders. So I would love to see the the cross correlation there of substance use or substance engagement. Oh, I'm sure it's a huge factor. It seems it's not like the it would only be. one, but not not making that not that's not right. an excuse. That is, I want to be very clear about that. There's, I'm not making an excuse for any of these perpetrators, but sort of that in that particular situation, the impulsivity, if it was affected by substance use, that could be a huge factor. Pretty common. Pretty common. So I do want to talk about the victims that we know who they are, because. So Samford said that there were up to 20 boys who were kidnapped, assaulted, and murdered on the ranch. Now, we already talked about how they disposed of bodies, and there was very little evidence to where they could connect some of these victims to missing children. But we do know about some, and as you said in the the film Changeling, the most infamous is the victim, Walter Collins. So Walter was nine at the time that he was abducted and his mom had sent him to go to the movies in Los Angeles. They lived in the Lincoln Heights area and he was last seen around five o'clock by a neighbor at the corner of Pasadena Avenue and Avenue 23. And initially he goes missing and his mom is really terrified because his biological father was in prison. 
he was at Folsom State Prison. And the first theory floating around was maybe he pissed someone off or owed someone a debt and that they had kidnapped Walter because Walter was a great kid, was not supposed to be wandering off, was not going off to work somewhere. You know, he went to school and lived with his mom, who was a single mother. But I think the police quickly ruled that out. So she reports his missing to the Los Angeles Police Department and his case really, and I don't know what made it so public, but it really got like nationwide attention. So like when you said the mom lived in LA, she knew what he looked like or Stewart's mom knew what he looked like. And she recognized this boy in the chicken coop, but this was a huge story all across the country. So her boy is missing. LAPD follows up on hundreds of leads and then it starts to go cold, like there is no movement. And five months after Walter disappears, there's a boy in Illinois who claims to be Walter. He That message gets back to the LAPD. Um, there are some letters and photographs exchanged with Christine Collins' mom, and she ends up paying for the boy to be brought out to Los Angeles to see if this is her son. So the police who did not have a lovely reputation, especially LAPD at that time, and were getting horrible press because of corruption and brutality that was happening. They organized this very public reunion in the hopes that the bad publicity is going to get erased by we this found him. beautiful we found story. Him. It's all going right. to be a reunion. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to look like heroes. Exactly. So... You can just imagine how thrilled she is and relieved and anticipating her son stepping off this train. And he steps off the train and she's like, that's not my son. And this police captain, Captain J.J. Jones, tells her, well, you know, five months has gone by. He's got to have had a rough life. He's probably changed a little bit. Why don't you take him home and try him out for a couple weeks? I mean, that's what you do. <laughs> just try him on for size. Yeah. Come on, little lady. It doesn't. I mean, it, it's it's not really significant that he's three inches shorter oh, than Walter. My God. That was I a know. part of it as well, is that he's shorter. And the doctor that was being paid off by law enforcement testified or told her, well, it's all the trauma he's been through. That could shrink his so, spine. Was that real? Because I couldn't find if it was real or not. That's definitely depicted in the film. Did you find I, anything about it being real? I was not. But then this is based on, I, I would have to look into the research on the script. That, I'll I'll see if I can find that before the week. This That may, may have been done for dramatic effect. But what I don't we know. do know, there was a lot of influence by law enforcement at the time oh, sure. to make her look like she was an unfit mother or that she wasn't being cooperative. I mean, right. So she, woman. she hesitantly agrees. Like she's so put on the spot, this poor woman, you know, she agrees like, okay, I'm going to take this kid home. And there are huge discrepancies. Um, this boy is circumcised and her son was not, like you said, the being three inches shorter, not that he's grown three inches in five months, but he has lost three inches. And she has dental records proving that it's not her child because there were fillings in her son. He had had dental work done. So after three weeks, three weeks living with this stranger kid, 
She returns to see Captain Jones and insists that the, the boy is not Walter again. And I have the dental records to prove it. And what does Captain Jones do? He has her freaking committed to the psychiatric ward at the Los Angeles County General Hospital, which we talked about in our last episode. Poor yep. Dorothy Jean Purcell was there too. Yep. And he is able to commit her there under a code called Code 12 an internment, which was a term to use to jail or commit someone who is deemed, quote, difficult or inconvenient. Which unfortunately was done a great deal, especially to women at that time, up really through the 70s. I mean, that's, we can go oh, all the way forward. God. Interestingly, oh, I just made a connection. So she was placed in a psychiatric ward, or Angelina Jolie in that role was placed in a psychiatric ward, and then she was again in Girl Interrupted. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. So she was incarcerated for, I don't want to say only 10 days. She was incarcerated for 10 days. Captain Jones questions the boy who eventually admits to being this 12-year-old kid, Arthur Hutchins, who had originally run away from Iowa. He ends up in Illinois. And he basically said, yeah, you know, Walter's name is everywhere. And I wanted to come to Hollywood because I wanted to meet my favorite silent film actor, Tom Mix. So he was just going to pretend to be this boy. Because there, that's what you do. There's the lure of Hollywood, right? Well, it's also thought that someone encouraged him like somebody was telling him the story like sort of a as, as he was this is right. and so something that kids did like we we're talking about they ran away or they went to find work he's on the road he meets somebody that tells him the story of the runaway kid and either he was given the idea or he thought of it himself yeah yeah so she gets released and good on her she promptly files a lawsuit against the city of los angeles and the police department and actually as a part as the result of that captain jones was supposed to personally pay her the over ten thousand dollars that she was awarded but do you think he ever paid this of woman? course not no of course not of course not so when the police finally go out to the chicken ranch after the gig is up. The police find bits of body parts and clothing that match Walter's. And it was inside the chicken coop, leading them to believe that he was one of the victims. After Stuart is arrested, Christine actually interviews him and sits down with him. And Stuart was so awful that he just fucked with everybody like after the fact once he's caught you know he represented himself in court and he did till the very end um he just really toyed with everyone but she said after listening to his repeated lies and supposed confessions and recantations she concluded that he was just insane she clung to the hope that walter was alive since sort of the the story that Stuart gave her was like, oh, I don't even know if I've even met him or not. And one boy had escaped the chicken coop and had come forward. So she always kind of hung on to that, that maybe same thing had happened with Walter. But a really cruel twist of events, Stuart sent Christine a telegram right before he was executed saying that he had lied when he denied that he said that he didn't know when he denied that he knew Walter. And he promised to tell the truth if she would come up to San Quentin and visit him right before his execution. And she does it. She she goes all the way up there right before 
he's about to have his meeting with her. He actually tells the guards, basically, I don't want to see her. I don't know anything about what you're talking about. I'm innocent. And she just spends the rest of her life searching for her son. So it's very sad. In the movie, they show more of a confrontation between them. And he's just, he's so creepy. I mean, I don't care. He's a hundred. This is almost a hundred years old. I don't mind doing some diagnosing and talking about how creepy in real life his photographs are. I mean, he looks deranged. No, the photographs are very telling. They're very telling. And although like I think from some of our earliest episodes, one of the things we always preach is that, you know, don't judge someone that's in the, in the room or but don't be so quick to judge, but clearly like these photographs, he just looks like a very disturbed individual. He's got very blank shark eyes. Like, I mean, he just like, oh, there's and nothing a big, going. like Joker smile half the yeah. time. I mean, sorry, we're throwing all that out the window. This guy was bonkers but bad guy bad guy. yeah very bad guy um but i i really like the film the film it was filmed mostly in my hometown of san dimas her house is walking distance from mine from the movie christine collins no yeah it was a huge deal because i remember it was like clint eastwood's directing it and he's in town and angelina jolie is here is it one of the is it that strip of um victorians that is really cool all the like the redone victorians it is in the downtown area it's on second street i'll post some pictures of it the house looks almost identical as it does in the movies, but that whole section, that whole area is from, you know, the 1900s to the 1930s. Um, And then there's some like downtown areas that are filmed when she's on the trolley. And then a lot more is just river, what's supposed to be Riverside and then Los Angeles. But Walter is, is definitely the, um, you know, because of Christine's story and, and her trying to find him for so long is he's the most infamous of the victims. But there was also the Winslow brothers who were 12 and 10, Lewis and Nelson, and they were abducted on May 16th, 1928 in Pomona, California, which is very close out here by me. And they were uh, walking home from a yacht club meeting and they disappeared. So their parents started receiving strange letters from them while they were missing. At first, their letters were saying, oh, we're headed to Mexico. And then they were saying that they were planning on just staying missing as long as they could because they want to become famous. I looked at a lot of local papers. The community was very involved in raising a reward for the boys to be found. Um, the Mother's Club out here were constantly holding fundraisers to try and raise money. And it was not uncommon, like I said before, for boys to sort of leave home and be runaways or go to work. But this wasn't the case for these boys as well. So during a search of the ranch, A Pomona library book that had been checked out by one of the brothers was found, as well as a note written out to their parents saying, don't worry, we're fine. So another one of Mm. those forced written notes. And I think a little piece of one of the boys' Boy Scout uniforms that he was wearing when he went missing was also found. But Northcott, Stuart Northcott was convicted of their murders as well because of the evidence that they found. And at one point, their dad, Mr. Winslow, he led a a lynch mob to the Riverside County Jail where Stuart was temporarily being held. And he full on, they had the intent of hanging him 
right after the completion of his trial, but before the sentencing. So the uh, police was able to convince the mob to disband before that happened. And then you mentioned the, I wanted to come back to the Mexican adolescent that was beheaded. And I found some conflicting information on his name as well. I know you mentioned Julio Mendez. I found the name Alvin Gothia. That's what I, yeah, that I saw that as well. So I'm right. not sure if anybody's out there that is more familiar with this case and their research, please let us know. Well, it was, you know, or was research, it two? I mean, I don't know. And, and they, I'm guessing because the names are so different that they're probably two different victims. And I right. feel awful that I don't have the right name. But so many of the papers back then just said headless body of a Mexican, which was a horrific way to refer well, to this person. It, it's even worse than that. It's yeah. that they he it became known in the newspapers as the headless Mexican, which is right. this poor person has been murdered and now you're even furtherly you're racially objectifying this poor victim, which is just awful. Yeah. I you know n- Northcott's story was that there was a fight with this individual, and I definitely agree to that. This is actually the only murder that he confessed to fully. And so I, you know, to me, that says, you know, this boy's a little bit older. The way that the body was disposed of really suggests that it wasn't like the others. I doubt that there was any sexual assault. You know, I think agreed like with you what you said about the head just being removed to avoid identification which was probably the only way to identify someone back then but you know i don't think this was someone who was one of his sexual assault victims in so the way re- that I, his other victims were do you know was there any evidence in alvin of of him having been sexually assaulted there was zero mention of it so okay, okay. and it, like i said they also drove his body nearly all the way back to Los Angeles to dump it. So again, there's just so much victimology here that's different from the other boys. But I mean, I thought, you know, to talk about like some final thoughts about Stuart's psychological makeup, and I know you want to talk about the parents a little bit more. I mean, I do think he probably fits the criteria for pedophilic disorder, likely exclusive. I mean, there's no indication of a relationship or sexual interest in adults. You know, I didn't hear about a girlfriend ever, any relationship that he had, except for possibly with his mother, but that's a whole other thing. Um, I know throughout the trial, he kept insisting that he loved the boys that he Uh, had come into contact with. That's something that we hear with pedophiles. Um, But also know your audience. It's like you've you've already gone way past the point of justifying your, so you, you killed these kids you loved. I mean, that's just crazy talk. Right. That's right. my official diagnosis. That's crazy talk. And know your audience. Yeah. Know um, your audience. <laughs> and male, uh, male perpetrators who have male victims actually have a higher rate of reoffense. So when we do risk assessment evaluations, if the individual has male victims, they get a point in that category, which goes towards their their risk of reoffense. Okay. Um so when there's this preference and we've talked about, you know, the crossover issues, but when there's this preference you definitely see someone who offends over and over again, which definitely happened in this case. Well, one I will say there was one silver lining that came out of Walter's 
death. And that is tangentially related to his mother's hospitalization. So Christine's involuntary hospitalization in what was called the psychopathic ward at that time, we now call them psychiatric inpatient facilities. That's right. Um, a law was passed that you could not forcibly commit people to psychiatric facilities just by words of authority. So it's like you couldn't go to a doctor and pay them off to write something. Now, did it still happen? It absolutely still happened across the country for years. But maybe that was one of the things that set in motion at least a legal precedent, because it really is only until the mid-80s that we stopped seeing that. Um, real abuse of forcible psychiatric inpatient uh, holds. Yeah. Thank you so, for bringing that up. I think that's a, it, she did work really hard to right some of the wrongs that had been done to her. Right. I, I highly recommend the movie and I highly recommend. So as well as the changeling with Angelina and Jolie directed by Clint Eastwood, there's also a very famous episode of the series Dragnet called The Big Imposter. And Dragnet started out as a radio show prior to being a television series. So it aired as a radio play June 7th, 1951. And then when they shifted over to television, they adapted it to a teleplay that aired on December 4th, 1952. And it was it was more focusing on a child that was an imposter. And I don't believe if I remember correctly, I don't think it really implied like a mass murder serial killer like Stewart, but about a missing child and the, the criminal activity of be, basically being an imposter. Yeah. I don't think there was the audience in the early fifties for that sort of stuff. Like there is right. now, <laughs> right. they would have been like, Oh, good God. We can't put that on television. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at the most pulpy crime novels from the time, from that time, it was nowhere as violent as the type of thing that we're talking about. So, I mean, it's funny as we were preparing all this stuff, I was like, could he have been a psychopath? And then like the more you read, it's like, well, there's no way he wasn't. Exactly. So, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier is that there are multiple things going on. So he's clearly a psychopath, but also with this real sense of entitlement and narcissism and rage. So I think that he really would be someone that fits what we kind of have termed a narcopath. We've talked about this several times in previous episodes. He did tell his attorney that he wanted to be world famous. Right. He wanted to be known by everybody, and he achieved that goal. We look at the combination, even though it's not in the DSM, we look at the um, narcopath as a combination of narcissism and sociopathy. So a, a sociopathic narcissist will be cold and callous, but also seeking because they need the admiration of others or the control of others, and they clearly think that they deserve it. So they will have a real disdain for individuals, for for basically everyone but themselves. And it's completely okay to exploit and dispose of others in whatever way necessary to get their needs met. So really, it's like taking the absolute worst parts of a narcissist and the absolute worst parts of a sociopath and combining them. There's also a great interview on the Investigation Discovery Evil Ken show, an interview with a retired San Bernardino Sheriff's Department deputy named Jack Brown. And he reported, like your family being multi-generational in law enforcement, his grandfather was also a deputy that participated in the interview of Stewart. Oh, wow. Uh, after he'd been arrested, he stated that he was arrogant with lifeless eyes and he was crowing 
wing all through his trial and interrogation that they would never conduct him and that his mother would fix everything. Oh, so some real scary. creepy enmeshment there. Mommy's going to fix everything. Right. Sarah Louise, Louise, she confesses to all the murders thinking that it's going to free Stuart, but mainly Walter Collins. It, of course, did not work. He's arrogant throughout the trial. He's expecting a last minute reprieve. And he was reported in several of the newspaper articles that I found on newspaper.com to have spent the night before his execution telling dirty jokes to anybody who would listening listen and singing obscene songs. Oh. But then as he was escorted to the gallows, he broke down sobbing and screaming, um, you know, for his mom and for that, that everything was wrong. I think it finally probably hit him. Right. About right. what was to happen. So out of, I found a, an article also about uh, Sarah Louise Northcott because she was in the same prison on the other side awaiting, you know, awaiting her son's execution. I want to read this uh, newspaper article. In another part of the prison, tossing fitfully on her cot, lay his mother, Mrs. Louise Northcott, convicted with her son sobbing dry-eyed at the thought that her boy was to drop through a trap into oblivion almost within earshot while she was powerless to help him. Last night, the youthful slayer consented to see in his death cage Mrs. Christine Collins, mother of Walter Collins, believed to have been another victim of his sadistic fury. Northcott had previously told the mother that he knew nothing about her boy. This time, he admitted that Walter had been slain but refused to assume responsibility for the act. When pressed by Warden James B. Hollihan and the tearful Mrs. Collins, he replied evasively, Ask my nephew, Sanford Clark, or ask my mother. They both know. Oh, my gosh. You know, one of the most satisfying scenes of the film is when they are walking him to the gallows. And he's going, is it going to hurt? Is it going to hurt? And the guards have, like, zero empathy. And they're walking him up the stairs because it's like this built up, you know, the gallows to hang him. And he's like, you're rushing me too fast. Slow down, slow down. And you're just like... Buddy, you deserve every moment of this. Well, but that's a great also illustration, even if it was done for dramatic effect. That's a great illustration of someone who clearly had never had any boundaries, never had been told no, had no expectations put upon him to be, you know, a, a normal contributing person with appropriate boundaries. Sure. So when we dig into the psychopathology, I just thought started tossing out things and clearly there's toxic enmeshment between mom and son and probably other family members that we just really don't have privy to more information to to dig that deep but lots of diffuse boundaries both louise and stewart had disordered personalities as well as some real toxic twists on defense mechanisms so clearly there's denial going on right in 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 uh, Sarah, she's just denying that this is a problem. Now it could be that there's that's a twisted version of regular denial that most of us feel at some point, or she could have been actually psychotic. But the idea that she was as much as a psychopath as her son to be able to engage in these brutal murders is is pretty tangible, I think. Or she can, you know, you could be there are other defense mechanisms such as displacement. You can take your really overwhelming emotions and frustrations toward a person that doesn't feel threatening. So what a lot of what we know about narcissism is that this overblown sense of self and grandiosity comes from actually a very empty place. So it could have been that Stuart was just so disordered that he found the most malleable and weak victims, most vulnerable victims for his inexplicable rage, his just unending rage, and he took it out on them. And of course, 
puts himself in an environment in a bubble where there are no boundaries says out in the middle of the desert with no one to supervise him so he's clearly unfettered and unbound in this way so there's I, when i think about an, all the defense mechanisms rationalization is an interesting one because when we talk about what sarah's actions were she didn't her idea of fixing it was to get rid of the problem to not not to have her son locked up or looked at or hospitalized or analyzed, but to go after the children and clean up after him, which is further indication of this real enmeshment and diffusion where I doubt that Sarah and Stuart really knew where one ended and the other began. Yes. So she took his bad deeds as hers as well like there was no border there and then it, it was a a self-preservation in a twisted way because whatever he's doing is representative of her or is they're they're one in the same right so she's getting rid of the problem instead of getting him help and while there's a lot of conflicting and sort of not necessarily bullet point proven information there is a lot of research out there one thing we do know that if the intrafamilial sex abuse is true, then Cyrus Gordon is a rapist. He's right. a he's a rapist. He's uh, an incestor. He committed this horrible crime against his own daughter, but he may have just been as disordered as anybody else in the family. But because he was an upstanding white guy with a lot of money, he was able to not have the focus put on him, but rather the crazy wife, grandmother, mother, and son, grandson. Yeah, this could have been going on for generations. Yeah. So rough stuff, but a fascinating case. Highly recommend you guys read our show notes. I think they're fascinating. And yeah, we're going to be really diving into some of these very salacious but fascinating crimes from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. This one was probably the most high profile that we're going to cover for a while. The other ones that I've found are fascinating in their own right because... They've taken on life in various movies. The next one we're going to be discussing is almost reminiscent of the movie Chicago, the storyline Chicago. Okay, great. About notoriety and fame and how women are treated. If you're a beautiful woman at that time in the 20s and 30s and you had the right attorney and the right money, you could get off with of any charge. Excellent. Yeah. So we will be continuing this series through March, which this is fun to do kind of a themed series. But yeah. I know a lot of you also suggested topics and cases for us to do. We will cover those in our Get Vocals that follow these episodes because we we just wanted to do this for a couple of months, but we'll get those in somewhere and they'll be available on audio for Patreon and then on YouTube. So we did a great show with John Lorden uh, last week. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't know when it will be out, um, but John asked us to be on a panel, essentially kind of a roundtable, talking about responsible true crime content creation, and it was nice to be part of the the conversation with some really wonderful creators, John himself, of course, and Stephanie Harlow, and then Sarah Turney, having a voice of a family member um, and 
an indirect victim herself, of course, you know, taking all of these things into consideration and when that goes wrong, what that sort of looks like. And I think you and I just lent a voice to the damage that it could do and what's going on for people who really are seeking to do damage that are out there more of right. cyber bullies and trolls. Um, but look for that. I'm, I'm, I think everyone will really enjoy it just as a very interesting discussion with creators. We'll put a link up in our promo materials when John drops it. I would love for everyone to uh, take part in listening to that. I think we all had something very valuable to add to the conversation and we could then follow up with our own get vocal that yes. week afterwards. I think that's going to be a great conversation. It's a good idea. All righty, Scott. Thank you. I look forward to these next two. These are going to be great. So I do want to share something that was really great. Dr. Shiloh and I got both got our second vaccinations recently. Um, it was very exciting because I've had, I've been able to, I was able, I've seen you physically five times maybe in the last, in the last six months. Going on a, well, I mean, we're going on maybe a year since actual lockdown and stuff. I mean, so. like we, we've dropped things off to each other. Like you drop yeah. things off in the office and we're in within six feet masked and everything. Right. But right. it was really cool the other day to take like a little bit of a chance. We were both still double masked, but I got to hug you for the first time. That was a really big deal. It so, was really nice. Of course. And we, our side effects weren't terrible with our second shot. So they were, it was doable. It was worth it. It was everybody, nice. please consider. <laughs> I, I, you know, and respect everybody's beliefs and 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 needs yeah. and their own health. But if you can, if you can get vaccinated, please get vaccinated and let's get on top of COVID and not let it become a, a thing that stays with us for decades. Because if we don't all take part, it may very well do that. Yeah, so, and thank you to all of our our nurses and healthcare workers that are actually out there giving the vaccines, seriously. working crazy crazy hours. It's so much appreciated thank you thank you very much all right folks thanks so much for sticking with us with this gruesome but fascinating story we will see you next time on la not so confidential bye folks have a great weekend bye sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash LA Not So Podcast. Until next time, folks, 